Merry Christmas. Hopefully you've had your share of sweets and food and all sorts of stuff preparing for a fast, which by the way is next year, so don't worry about it. Oh, that's only in a few hours, isn't it? Okay, so we got to get a little serious. I also want to thank Pastor Tom for preaching the three-point sermon, so now I don't have to. Now I can be just free to preach and talk to you about things that are on my heart. So if you don't know who I am, my name is Chris Lancer. I'm the business pastor here at City Church, and my background is as a business leader who traveled all over the world and uh, pioneered divisions of companies and did a variety of things, meeting with government and business leaders around the world, and that was before God called me here. I left my company at the end of 2008 and got a call from Lake City Church at the time to take a look at our child care center. They were wondering some business strategies, and, and so they said, would you volunteer your time for a couple weeks? Well, that became a couple months because you can't do much in a couple weeks, which then they said, we love your skills. Could you stay on for six more months? We really need someone who has your skills. And so I said, okay, to six months. And um, that six months, I guess, still isn't over. I feel like it's the book of Daniel with the 70 weeks. So I've been delighted to be here 15 years, and it's a joy to be on staff, which is a talented group of people, truly. And I also want to say it's a joy to be with you. I think of all the people here, especially as you're praying for messages and preparing, and it's such a delight to be in relationship with so many of you. And, uh, and I just really appreciate the love, the care, the compassion, the prayers, especially that you pray for me, for Pastor Tom, for all of our staff at the church, it is just so critical, and it really gives us the fuel behind what we do. So thank you so much. In my journey, I became a pastor in 2018. I wasn't a pastor right away, but God had called me back in 2003, and it was after I was part of our college and career ministry with Tom Alexander, and the Lord said to me, I was talking about visiting some people, he said, do you see that heart? That's a pastor's heart, and someday maybe I'll call you to be a pastor. And I just said, okay. Well, it wasn't 15 years till 15 years later that God actually did exactly that. So sometimes there are things that are worth waiting for that God's doing. As I prayed about this message today, I sensed the Lord say this, tell people about my heart for my people. And so that's what I'm going to try to do this day, today. This message is going to be about Jewish people in the history of Israel. And I hope that our hearts can be more closely aligned with God's heart. By the end of this message, I hope you better understand some of God's covenants with the Jewish people, a better understanding of God's commitment to you, and here's why. And when God covenants with the people and he keeps his commitment, we can know that when God covenants with us in relationship with him, he will keep his commitments as well. It's a very important point. And I hope you have a desire to love who God loves and to honor those who have gone before us. So I want to start with my journey here. I I'm, grew up in a Jewish household, Christian household, is kind of a mix. My dad was Catholic, my mother was Jewish, and really that became much stronger once my parents separated. My mother, who had converted to Catholicism, left Catholicism, and was kind of agnostic for a little bit, but by nine or ten years old, she began going back to her Jewish roots, and my father very strongly Catholic. And so I grew up in that environment, going back and forth between two parents, the Jewish household, and a Christian household. Now, my mom didn't exactly, we didn't live with my mom the whole time, we lived with my dad most of the time, so we did some of the Jewish holidays, but as my mom would say, she didn't exactly raise me Jewish. So when I got saved, I'm like, oh, I'm a Messianic Jew, and the first conversation I had with my mom, she said, well, not, not really. I mean, I didn't raise you that Jewish. 
Now my mom was raised in an area where there were almost no Gentiles. So being Jewish was part of the culture, part of the life. They went to synagogue, a conservative synagogue every Sunday, so every, not Sunday, every Saturday morning, Friday night. And uh, so that was part of her story. So when she said she didn't raise me that Jewish, to some of you, she may have raised me very Jewish. So that's a, you know, that's relative. So in 2006 though, I was at a church in Michigan and there was a guy named Ron Cantor who was speaking. And Ron Cantor is a Messianic Jew and he began to show a video of Tel Aviv and his family. It was an eight minute video and during this video, a couple minutes into it, I began to experience a strange homesickness. And I'm like, what is this about? And I began to start weeping. And I'm like, something is wrong with me. I should not, why should I be homesick? There's nothing, I've never been to Israel. I don't even know what this is about. And this guy's just showing pictures of his family. And so I said, God, what is going on? And the Lord spoke to me very clearly. He said, I'm restoring your Jewish identity. This began for me a journey that took me to Israel in 2012, where I explored the northernmost part, the southernmost part, east, west, and I wanted to see the boundaries of Israel. I wanted to see the people of Israel. I met Palestinians who were not Christian. I met Islamic people. I met Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews. I met Jews who were not Christian, including my family. I met a whole variety of people. And it was complex, and I recognized that Israel is complex. It's a complex land, and there's complex things going on. As I went and met with some distant relatives in near Tel Aviv, I was on my way down to Eilat because I wanted to see the Red Sea. I was going as far south as I could. And Israel's not a big country, so, but I was going to drive along Gaza, and they said, don't drive along Gaza. And I said, why not? They said, well, they're going to shoot rockets. Um, they just got a terrorist, in, a Hamas terrorist, and, and you know, this is what happens. And I'm like, shoot rockets? Are you kidding me? They go, oh, Chris, they shoot rockets every day. And I said, what? How come I never hear about it on the news? I said, because the news doesn't report these things. They've been doing this since 2004. Now, that shocked me. I indeed did not drive along the route to see Gaza. Um, I took my relative's advice, who live in Israel, and it turns out they shot 50 rockets that day. Now, I'm not trying to focus on Hamas and Israel in the war, okay, in this message. This is just some context. I would have told this to you a year ago, the same thing. 50 military-grade rockets are shot, and there were casualties. There were two, two farm animals. Now, how is it that rockets that are shot at a people don't hit and only end up taking out a couple farm animals? 50, think of the odds. Come on, 2% odds would be that one of them's gonna hit somebody. None of them did. And I would suggest to you, this is part of the modern miracle of today and God's hand of protection on the Jewish people. I did get to go in 2020 back to Israel, which was a great trip. It was a pastor's conference and I got to see some of the behind the scenes things that most people don't get to see about Israel and some of the things that the government is doing. And in 2021, in the pandemic, the Lord led me to start a doctor of ministry program in Messianic Jewish studies, which I'm currently doing. So that has been my journey, and I want to be transparent as I present this message today to you about God's heart for his people. I am ethnically Jewish, as are several in our congregation. I can look out and I know some of the ethnically Jewish people that are sitting here because we've had many conversations. 
I also enjoy celebrations, Jewish celebrations, feasts like Passover, Purim, which is the story of Esther and how a people got saved from an attempt at genocide. I enjoy Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. I enjoy Shavuot, which is the Feast of First Fruits, which, by the way, was the day the Holy Spirit came and tongues came on the people in the upper room. Interesting coincidence. Actually not. I enjoy Hanukkah. I've found some of these rhythms of life to be very rich, and I've also seen that we even have a small group or a couple small groups that are practicing the rhythm of Sabbath. There's a lot to be learned and gleaned from the Jewish people and Jewish rhythms. I am also a follower of Jesus as the Messiah. I do not find Jewish practice and messianic practice to be at odds with each other, but I find them linked together in a beautiful way to focus on the eternal living God. I enjoy the Hebrew language, and thanks to an amazing professor, Dr. Greenberg, who I've taken, studied with, I'm able to read the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, in Hebrew mostly, which I really enjoy and find rich, and I'll share a little bit with you though later. Here's what I'm not. I'm not a Judaizer. A Judaizer means that I believe that Gentiles should all follow the Jewish law in the way it's prescribed. No, I don't. I also don't believe that every promise for ethnic Israel is for the church. Some are. We're grafted into a beautiful spiritual set of promises, but not every promise for ethnic Israel, like the land, is for the church. On the flip side, I am not a replacement theologian. Some of you know what that is, some don't. Replacement theology says that the Jews are no longer, who did not receive Jesus, are no longer really a people, and the church is the new Israel, and everything that Israel was supposed to get, now the church gets and Jews are out. I don't believe that because of the nature of the God that we serve and his covenantal ways. I am confident that God has covenants and a heart for ethnic Israel and is inviting us into his heart for a people he calls Ami, my people. By the way, that word is used 1,862 times in the Old Testament if you want to hear about God's commitment to his people. So as we examine God's heart for ethnic Jews, I want to say that my desire is it gives perspective for the people God made a covenant with, but it's not an opinion about the war with Hamas and Israel. This message was crafted long ago in God's heart and is not necessarily for today. However, I would say this as well. The scriptures we look at may impact how you see Israel and the current war. My goal is to simply present what God says. I do not believe the government of Israel or Jews are sinless. You can figure that out if you read the Bible about a chapter or two or three in, that that's the case. God exposes Israel throughout, and it's not exactly pretty when we get to see all the sins of Israel. I don't know that you want all your sins put in writing and up on the board for everybody to see, but it would be like that. So... I also want to say we're only going to be able to touch on a few things today about the Jewish people because this subject is very broad and deep. But my desire is you come away with an honor and appreciation for the Jewish people that they have laid a foundation for us. And while our culture is one that worships and honors youth, I'm going to ask you today to make a switch and honor those who have gone before us, which I think is God's way. They have plowed the road that we can enjoy many, many things, both about who God is and what he's doing. So with that, I want to ask you to stand in the reading of God's word, and I also 
at this time want to invite kids who would normally be in kids' church, kindergarten through fifth grade, if you want to come down, you're going to sit right along in front of the people in the front row. I want to invite you down now, and then we're going to tell you, going to tell you some of the Jewish story. Uh, so I'm going to read the scripture. I'm going to tell a couple things, but children, come on down. And Pastor Jason, if you'd join them, that would be great. So let's read God's word. Romans, this comes from Romans 11 when Paul is talking about Jewish Gentile things and about this issue of Israel. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham. From the tribe of Benjamin, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Again, I ask, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. If part of the dough is offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes and our hearts to know what we're grafted into? Lord, would you build in us the culture of honor that Paul talks about here? And would you bring life and grace this morning as we hear what you have to say? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Kids, stay right there. I'm going to come to you in just a minute. Paul is addressing the issues of Jewish people who did not accept Jesus at the Messiah at the time of his coming. I do want to say there are many Jewish people who did receive Jesus as the Messiah. Some people that you might know might be like Paul and James and John and all 12 apostles, the early church. There's a lot of Jewish people that did receive. So I just want you to be aware of that lens when you read scripture. The Jews or Judeans is not referring to everybody clearly. It refers to some people who said no. So Gentiles, which by the way just means other nations. In Hebrew it's goyim. It was never used negatively until about the 18th century. So in the time of writing, this was just, you have the people of God and you have the other people who are of other nations. And Gentiles are invited to or grafted into the spiritual life, Paul says. Now, Paul warns not to be arrogant of the Jewish people. And as I said, I'd suggest a posture of honor, humility, and respect. The Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament makes up about three quarters of our Bible. And there's deep, rich history in that. And I want to share that with you. But actually, I'm going to share some of the history with the kids today. So, if it's okay, kids, I'm going to ask you to back up just a little bit. Maybe a little bit more toward the seats there. You might need to make two rows to all fit. There we go. Because I want to be able to be in front here and I've got something to do. That's great. So I want to tell you the story of the Jewish people. And it starts with a man named Abram. Or Abraham. Abram was in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. 
And God said to him, I want you to make a journey to a land I will show you. He didn't even tell him where he was going. And God invited him on this journey and he said yes. Now he had a wife, but he didn't have children. But he had servants and he had farm animals. He was a very wealthy man in those days. If you take a look at this journey, Ur is way over on the right, upper right there on the map. And they went way up to Nineveh and Haran and then came down to what we now know as the land of Israel. And to give you an idea, that was about a four-month journey, not knowing where you're going. And he gets to this land, and God says, I will bless you and make you a fruitful nation. He makes a covenant with the people. Now, for the adults here, you're going to see some scriptures on the screen that you can read. I'm not going to read them, but that's some of the proof text. This comes from Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Now, here's what... The eternal covenant means, it says, it says there on the, scri- on the slides, eternal covenant, everlasting possession, he says. Eternal, you know what that is in, in Hebrew? It's berit olam. Berit is a covenant. Olam means until forever. It's forever a year? It's forever till tomorrow? No, how long's forever? Forever, right, forever, like for all times. So, now a covenant is kind of hard to describe. It's kind of like a contract or a promise, but even more. So I need four volunteers. I need two from this side. Right here, right here. You two, right here. And pick you. And yeah, come on up. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take, oh, it seems like tug of war. Grab, the two of you have to grab on. And the two of you get to grab on. Okay. Now, but it's not quite tug of war. I'm going to come to the other side here. What I want you to do is see if you can pull this knot apart. And this represents like a covenant that God made with the people. So on the count of three, I'm going to see if you can pull this apart. Ready? One, two, three, go. Come on, pull harder. You're almost there. Does that look like it's going to come apart? No. No. Okay, let's give up. (laughs) Thank you all. But this is symbolic of the covenant that God made with his people. An everlasting, unbroken, unbreakable covenant. And actually, Abraham was given five covenants in those scriptures. And I want to read to you what those five covenants are. So, first, he said he's going to have a special son through his wife, Isaac. Now, his wife was 89 years old when, she, when they were told, like, this is really coming through your wife. I don't know how many people here are 89 years old, but having a child at 89 might be a little more challenging than some people think. So this was a miracle of God to give a child, and sure enough, that happened. He said, Abraham is going to have a lot of descendants. So he talks to a a childless man and says, you're going to have kids, or at least a kid. Who's going to have kids? 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 He said, it's going to be so much that there will be nations that come out of his children. Not just one nation. You know, the U.S. is one nation. We have 300 million people. He said there will be nations coming out of your people, out of you. He made a third promise. He says, I will give Isaac's descendants this land that we are now in, which is what we call the land of Israel today. Then he said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Blessing means doing something good. Cursing means doing something bad. So I will bless those. I'll do good things for those who do good for you. And I'll do bad things for those who come against you badly. And God asked for one thing. 
He asked the men to be circumcised. Now, you can let your parents explain what that is later, but let's just say this. It's a male sacrifice that females don't need to make. And that was the covenant. So, then he has his son Isaac. And Isaac has two sons himself. They're named, they're twin sons, by the way. They're named Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob says his name means deceiver. And what did he do? He tried to trick his brother and succeeded out of his birthright. Now, in Jewish culture, birthright means you get a double portion of what your father's wealth is. So it meant a lot. Now, Esau didn't really value his birthright that much because he traded it for a bowl of stew. And some of you may know this story. But when Jacob received Isaac's blessing by tricking his dad into thinking, who was very old, into thinking it was his twin brother, Esau, his brother Esau got very mad at Jacob. And his mom said, quick, run, go to our relatives because your brother's going to kill you. And so he runs off to the relatives. And Esau didn't find him. But during this time with the relatives, Jacob works for his relative, Laban, his uncle, and also falls in love with a beautiful woman, gets married. He actually married two people, but that's a long story. You can ask your parents about that one too if you want. He begins to have a big family, but he is tricked into staying longer than he was told that he needed to stay. First it was seven years, and then it was another seven years, and he stayed a while longer. And after 20 years, he decides he's going to go back to try to see his brother. Now remember, his brother wanted to kill him because he stole his birthright. So when he went, he did this. He sent part of his family way ahead. He said, give some gifts to Esau. And then he said another part of his family had give some more gifts to Esau. And another part, give more gifts to Esau. And he was hoping to soften his brother's heart so that way his brother might accept him. And when he was alone that night, he wrestled with God all night through. And he said in the morning, it says that that's angel of the Lord is what it says for God. He said, I, he said, let me go. And Jacob said, no, not till you bless me. And so he got his hip out of socket, which doesn't sound like a blessing, so he's a limp. But he said this, your name will no longer be deceiver, Jacob, but it will be Israel. And this is how we get the name Israel. So what happens to Jacob or now Israel? He ends up, he has 12 kids. He ends up going to Egypt because there is a famine in the land. In other words, there's no food. Where do you go? You're going to go where you find food. So now, with no food, they are living and they're, they're getting a little food. And does anyone know Joseph? Does anyone know about, can I get the mic, Jason? Who knows who Joseph is? Let's see. Who's Joseph? He's a person that, well, I don't really know. You don't know. Okay, that's okay. You know who Joseph is? Joseph was um, a person who dreamt and his other brothers didn't like it. So what did they do? They threw him in a well. Yes. So they dreamt. Yes. Give him a applause for that. So his other brothers didn't like him. They threw him into a well. He ends up, told his dad he's dead. He ends up getting sold into slavery, is in a prison, and he ends up being promoted because of his dreams 
because God gave him dreams. He interprets a dream for Pharaoh and gets promoted to second in command and helps save his family from the famine and save all of Egypt by storing up grain and parsing it out and giving it in the right portions. Then what? Then he, is, he brings his family right to the best land of Egypt. And then it says something that Pharaoh died and a new Pharaoh arose who did not know of Joseph. And so they saw that the Israelites were becoming many, 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 and they decided to enslave them. And they kept multiplying, kept more and more and more. They were slaves for 20 generations, 400 years about. And more and more and more came. So the Pharaoh said, we're going to kill the firstborn male of every Jewish household. Now this is where Moses comes on the scene. So Moses is born. He's floated down the river and he is taken by Pharaoh's daughter and she wants to raise him. And so Pharaoh's daughter helps save Moses. Now Moses grows up. Does anyone know what happens with Moses? Okay, maybe, maybe. Okay, we'll come back to you. So Moses grows up and he sees an Egyptian slave driver who is beating up on a Jewish slave. And he starts beating up on him. Actually, he got to the point that he kills him. And so Moses fled. And then Moses has an epiphany. What does he see? Do you know what he sees in the wilderness? Is there something that's burning? I'm going to come to you in a minute, Jack. It's a burning bush. This bush is burning, and he calls him. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who call you. And he calls him to go to Pharaoh and say, what, Jack? Let my people go. Let my people go. Yes. And so what happens then is he goes to Pharaoh. Now, did Pharaoh let his people go the first time he said? No. He said no. He said no. Did he say no the second time or yes? No. Third time? No. No. Fourth time? No. Sixth time? No. Eighth time? No. When did he finally say yes? Ten. The tenth time. Do you know what was going on the tenth time? Yeah. It was like the plagues happening. Yes. Each time when they said, when he said no to Pharaoh, or when Pharaoh said no to them, the plagues happened, one plague at a time, and they got worse and worse and worse. Does anyone know what the tenth plague was? You know what the tenth plague is? What's the 10th plague? His son died. It was that they would take the son of the firstborn, you're right, except he told the Jewish people to put the blood of the lamb over a door. And when we talk about Jesus and the blood of the lamb, it's symbolic of this time. So they put the blood of the lamb over the door and then they would pass over. Now, who was it who was killing the firstborn initially before God made this? Jack? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Right, so this is as a response to Pharaoh. It's not quite as bad as you think, but this is an eye for an eye, it seems, and is painful. But God gave nine other opportunities to let the people go. And so God lets, or Pharaoh lets the people go. The people of God get into the wilderness. There's a wall of fire on one side because Pharaoh's army is coming after them. He changed his mind again after 10 times. They get in this place where they're caught between a sea and a wall of fire. And they're like, where are we going to go? We're going to die here. We're going to die. And what does God do? Everyone knows this. Just shout it out. He moves the water to the side. He parts the Red Sea. And the people walk through, it says, on dry land. 
and the Jews get free, and, and the army of Egypt tries to follow them in, and they all get drowned. And this is the rescue of the people of God from slavery. Now they wander through the wilderness, and then after 40 years, they said no to God on some things. But God still provided for them. He gave them manna, he gave them water to drink, he led them around. Because he said, I have blessed you to be a blessing. And then he leads them into the promised land. So that's some of the story of Israel and the Jewish people. Now, I want to do something for you that I'm going to ask Pastor Jason to help with a little bit. I want to give you, I'm going to pass these out. Now, these are a blessing. This is what I'm going to call blessing. It's a little pod. Because inside the little pod are three toys. Now, here's what I want you to do. This is, I love a gumball machines. I've got a gumball machine in my office. So here it is, here's what I want you to do. I am blessing you so you can be a blessing to others. I want you to take one gift for yourself, and I want you to give the other two to either other children or some adults that are childlike in our congregation. So start with the first few rows and then return to your family. So thank you so much for being part of the story that I was telling about the Jewish people. So go ahead and open the pot up. If you can, you might have to squeeze a little bit on the plastic. Okay, or slam it against the ground. That'll work too. And go ahead and give a couple gifts out. We have all sorts of creativity in this place here. So God keeps his promises. We can learn all sorts of things from the Hebrew scripture and from the Jewish people beyond this. Here's an example. Before entering the promised land, God shows how devoted he is. So Joshua, which in Hebrew, Yeshua, which you may find familiar, which is also the name of Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, he comes and is the new leader. He lays down. Kids, you can go back to your parents. I know you want to play with the gifts here, but go ahead. You can go back to your parents and hand out some toys on your way. Thank you. Yeah, you can give them a hand. That's great. By the way, if you're looking for more Jewish stories for your kids, there's a whole Zoe series that one of my colleagues in my doctoral program has written. So Zoe, this is one, Zoe discovers Passover at Easter. So if you have any interest, it's Renee Wallace, but look for the Zoe series on Amazon. You'll find it. So let me talk about a few other promises and what we can glean from the Jewish people. First, God keeps his promises. So Joshua becomes a leader, meaning deliver, and indeed, God had delivered his people from slavery into the promised land. By the way, this is kind of interesting. So how did they cross? It sounded all familiar. How did they cross? They crossed the Jordan River at flood time. God stopped up the waters again, very reminiscent of coming out of Egypt. And so God establishes a leader right there. Miracles. And the name Hebrew, by the way, comes from this idea of crossing over. It's Ivrit in Hebrew. It's who they were called. They're the crossover people, the people who crossed over in the flood zone. So that's how the name Hebrew even came about. So Joshua does this thing. He approaches a man with a sword. He's told that he is going to take Jericho. He approaches with a sword, a man with a sword, and he says to the guy, are you on our side or the other? And the response is very interesting. God says, Neither. Neither. I'm an angel of the Lord's armies. And we know that this was God because Joshua bows down and worships. And it's a powerful place. 
But we learn this from the Jewish scripture and the Hebrew scriptures, that we have to make sure that we don't try to just get God on our side. We need to move to his side and make sure we're aligned with what he does. We learn that. And then you have the craziest military strategy, right? Who has ever thought of winning a city by walking around it a few times, quietly? And then on day seven, walk around it seven times and shout? And walls that are as thick, like thick enough to ride chariots on is what they did. They'd have chariot races on it. That a wall that thick is gonna come down? That's craziness. But God was demonstrating he is a miracle-working God. He is for a people to accomplish his will and his purpose. We also see this. We also see kind of the chastisement. They go for the battle of Ai. They're taking the promised land. And God said, do not take any of the spoils. And what happens? A family takes some, buries them, and the battle does not go well. A lot of Jewish people are lost. And so they inquire of the Lord, and they find out that there has been some idols in the land. And so God is serious about disobeying him and also serious about his commandments. Here's what Amos 3.2 says. He says, and why God judges sin so much. He says, from among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you, O Israel, alone. This is why I must punish you for all your sins. And this is just the book of Joshua. I mean, we have a shepherd boy, you know, shooting a stone at a a military man who's huge and very successful, who has maybe a little spot in his armor that's open. You know, I don't know if it was really that David was so skilled. Maybe he was. Maybe it was just he was that amazing. But this stone hits him right between the eyes. And maybe what was going on in heaven is that, you know, Lord saying, I love this guy's courage. He's a man after my own heart. You'll see. Would you go just give a little flick to that stone, make sure it gets right on track and takes out the giant. Maybe that's what happened, I don't know, but I kind of think that some of these things are interesting. So David is in the wilderness, a shepherd boy anointed king, and what he doesn't choose to do is to take the law in his own hands. He knows he's gonna be king, and he's being chased by a military army. He's hiding in a cave, and Saul comes in, and he could kill him. He does not. He said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Second time this happens where some of his, his people that he's gathered, kind of the misfits of society who became his mighty men. It's incredible, this story. And, and he goes, and they go and get him water because water, he's thirsty. And he pours out the water on the ground and he says, I'm not, can't drink of this because you risked your lives. You shouldn't have risked your lives. And he shows Saul that he could have taken out Saul that night. And so David waited for God's promise. And in that, we can remember that it is worth waiting for the promises of God, not to rush things, not to just make it happen in our own strength. We cannot do evil because we think it will ultimately have good. That is not okay. God does never justify his evil. So there's so much more to learn. There's so much more to learn. Let's look at good and evil as God defines it. I want to show you some Hebrew. So we're going to go to some of the Hebrew thing. Here's the word good, tov. Okay, this is what we translate good in English, but it's so much more. Tov means this, to infuse with life physically, emotionally, and spiritually. This starts in the book of Genesis chapter one in the creation story where God infuses life, infuses life in us, infuses life in animals, infuses life, and fills the earth with the breath of life. This is what the word good means to the Hebrew mind and the Hebrew understanding. Now with that, There's also evil, ra. 
This is the opposite of good. It means to suck the life out of us, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. It is not, kids, about making just a bad moral choice. This is a life-sucking, horrible thing is what sin does. And this is why God hates evil so much. It is exactly the opposite of who he is. It is the opposite of his character. It's nothing like what he wants and desires for us. So when we sin, we suck the life out of ourselves or suck the life out of others or both. And God says, I don't want that. So just that understanding alone, we can start parsing why God hates evil so much and why God asks us to run far from sin, to avoid sin. In this week of prayer and fasting, hopefully that's something you can think about and meditate on. So I was preaching a sermon at the end of October and I was preparing for it. This was down in, I preached in the Quad Cities at a a friend of mine's church. And um, I began to look at 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2, and it referenced some things back around the 10 Commandments. So I was looking at the 10 Commandments and I began to look at the scripture, Exodus 23, just simply, you'll have no other gods before me. So the Hebrew is written up there and it literally means in Hebrew, you shall not have other gods before me. <laughs> so, um, pretty literal. Now the low, the first letter, so Hebrews read right to left, so if you're looking way up at the upper right there, that low means never, ever, 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 ever in Hebrew. As our Hebrew professor would say, Dr. Greenberg, there are two words for, for no. There's the temporary and the permanent. Low, which is this, is the permanent never, ever, 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 ever. It's prohibited. It's prohibited. And then it says, we'll have no other gods before me. Well, the before me, the reason it's in red in there is because I want to tell you about this word, panaim, which comes from this word before me. It literally means in front of my face. Pana is the word for face in Hebrew. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he says, don't put anything in front of my face that gets between us. And here's the way I began to picture and meditate on it. I began to see this idea that here's God who wants this intimate relationship with me. And he's looking at me, I'm looking at him, and then I go, oh look, isn't this amazing? And and I get distracted by what's in front of me and I'm focused on what's in front of me. And I'm starting to love what's in front of me. And I'm also putting it right in God's face. And I'm saying, this is more important than you. And that is something we can get from the Hebrew that we don't get in the English. So in this week of prayer and fasting, I want you to consider what it means not to put anything in front of God's face and mock him with it. Because that's what I've concluded. It's mocking God when I put things in his face. We get to learn this from the Jewish people. Oh, look what we're grafted into, church. Look at the beauty and riches that we are grafted into. We're grafted into a history. We're grafted into an understanding of who God is. We're also grafted into the idea of a messianic kingdom. Now, I want to show you a painting which I saw. This is pretty cool. Now, I was at a friend's house who's in my program up in Appleton, and they they let me actually bring this so I could take pictures of it. This is a picture of the messianic kingdom, the kingdom to come. And in this, you're going to see a variety of things. Let's go to the next slide. So here is the temple, the messianic temple. And there are people coming from, you see the river of life coming and all the people streaming out of it from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's beautiful. And you can't maybe read this, but in the clouds that are on the left, that white wisps is actually Hebrew and it says Shekinah, which is the glory of God coming in the temple. So here you can see all the nations coming out. 
This part, the throne, this is really interesting because what this says in Hebrew is kisei melech Yeshua, which means the throne of King Yeshua. The idea of a savior. Now, yeshav in Hebrew means to deliver spiritually. So this is the the spiritual deliverer of Israel. And that is here. Here we also see the lion lying down with the lamb. And the Hebrew on the right side says, Baruch Larosh Tzadik, which means, blessed is the head of righteousness. This whole idea, we want to be righteous, but this whole idea is a Hebrew concept of being good and being righteous. People, let's look at the next part. On the upper left, you will see an eagle and you'll see a dove. Dove, we know, represents peace in the Holy Spirit. An eagle comes from, one of the places it comes from is Isaiah 40, where it says, we'll run and not grow weary. Walk and not grow weary. We'll rise up on wings like eagles. So this is in there. And out of the eagle's beak, let's go back one for a second. Out of the eagle's beak, actually, is the word shalom in the leaves of the olive branch, which is kind of interesting. We'll go one more here. I want to show you how, if you get a close-up of this, it is all made of Hebrew characters going from right to left. This artist was amazing. So the entire picture. You ever see like a picture of a person that when you get close, there's a whole bunch of little pictures of people? It's like that. But this is in Hebrew, and this was made before there were computers to do so. This is from the 1980s. So now, we've got the, the, the plowshare on the, on the kind of left there, that horn-looking thing. The, plow, the swords turn into plowshares. It's just a beautiful beautiful painting. And here's what is most amazing about it. This was commissioned by a Jewish Orthodox rabbi. It was completed by a Jewish scribe. We read about scribes and Pharisees sometimes. A Jewish scribe and calligrapher. And this is all from the Old Testament scriptures. This includes nothing from the book of Revelation, nothing from Matthew, nothing from New Testament scriptures. Our whole concept of a messianic kingdom is constructed from the Hebrew Bible and from the Jewish perspective. Now, Revelation affirms a lot of this. Matthew 25 affirms it. But the whole concept is a Jewish concept. Look at what spiritual heritage we are grafted into. It's amazing. And we're grafted into the Messianic kingdom. Now, this has not been a free heritage for the Jewish people. They've had to pay a price. Since God marked Israel as a people, there has been opposition both pre-Christ and post-Christ. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, but also in Christianity. Unfortunately, Christians have not always been allies of Jews and not always seen the Jewish people in the same way. For example, in 135 AD, Jews were banned from Jerusalem. In 160 AD, Marcion, who was a Christian, tried to remove anything Jewish from Scripture. And canon as we have it today wasn't created. The Old Testament was, but it wasn't decided upon Fortunately, the church fathers actually pushed back and said, no, this is going to be much more broad and we have to include all these scriptures. The Council of Nicaea, Jewish leaders, Jewish Christian Messianic Jews were not invited to the Council of Nicaea. There were forced conversions. There were massacres in 1096, the Crusades, where leaving from Aachen, the west part of Germany, walking through Mainz, they decided we need to kill the Jews because they killed our savior. Now, that's a lie because we know, first of all, the Romans did. And secondly, Jesus said, I do not. No one takes my life. I give it up on my own accord. 
So we know this is true, but this is some of the history. And, and Jews were pushed out of many places, the pogroms, the different varieties of things that have had. There's been persecution all this time. And of course, we know about the Holocaust. Some of the last things that Jews would have seen was a Nazi soldier in their belt that said this in German, Gott mit uns, which translates God with us. The soldiers were saying that they're exterminating the Jews because God is with the Nazi soldiers. And it simply wasn't true, but what a place. Well, since the Holocaust, a few things have happened. First of all, there's a reestablishment of the land of Israel, which remember I talked about replacement theology in the beginning? Those replacement theologians were suddenly going, oh my, there is a physical land for a people. Uh, We're off, we're off. And the Catholic Church was the first one to come forward and saying we've been wrong in 1965, and I applaud them for that. That was in Nostra Aetate was the document it was called. And there have been other things is the realization that, well, the apostles and Jesus were all Jewish. The early church was all Jewish. Gentiles were a very small amount, and it only happened with Cornelius's house against Peter's initial will. And then he goes, well, if God accepts the Gentiles, we have to accept them. They got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Come on. You know, he preaches the word to the Gentiles. They get baptized in the Holy Spirit. He goes, well, let's baptize them too. Invite them in. And that's exactly what the church decided. Jews as Jews, Gentiles as Gentiles, all together in Messiah. And that's Acts 15. We're grafted into a calling of the Jewish people. Again, my goal is not to get into a debate about the war, but is to show what I believe is scriptures And I want to show you a religious map right now of the world. This comes from pbs.org. And here's where you can see the predominant religion in each country. And you'll see a lot of Christianity around the world. You'll see Islam in green. You'll see Hinduism in orange. Anyway, you see a variety. And and then some people who are just non-religious, some nations that have a core of non-religious. And then there's a very small little bit, which let's zoom up on, in the Middle East. And this is the only country on the earth where there's a Jewish majority of people. And to give you an idea, let's look at the next slide. I want you to see, so about 75% Jewish people, about 20% is Islam, which there's about 20% Arabs in, in Israel as well. Israel's a democracy in the Middle East. It's different than the other nations around it. So if you go to the north, you're going to find some more Christians, but still it's an Islam majority. The other nations around are 90 to 95% Islamic. So if that gives you an idea of what's going on. And when we talk about land and a covenant land, it's a little difficult to wrestle with. First of all, this is very tiny. By the way, just Lake Michigan, more than two of Israel can fit in Lake Michigan. So it's small. It's smaller than Taiwan, the island of Taiwan. It's a very small country. And this is where our war is. Now, to be clear, I'm not exonerating all the, option, the, the actions of the Israel government or the Jewish people. God has clearly shown that Jewish people are not always right. And God did not exonerate always. People are responsible for their own actions. However, Israel offers the right of return right now in keeping with the biblical covenant, which is that Jews, I could emigrate to Israel if I so chose as a Jewish man. And I would be accepted in the country because this is about the return. Now, I want you to listen to a song. This is written by a Messianic Jew, Aaron Schust. And to just give you a little introduction to the song, I believe this is God's heart. You're going to hear a little bit of, of what we've covered. And you're also going to hear about a return and a calling of people, both back to Israel, the land, 
and to the Messiah, Jesus. So let's listen. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, hear and obey, O Israel. I will bring you back home. And I believe God is bringing two ways the Jewish people home. Some are coming to the homeland. Others are coming to Messiah. And some of them are doing both. And that's my desire. So in closing, I want to say this. The Jewish people are, far, are not perfect. They're far from it. And the Bibles expose this. However, I do want you to see the people whom God has covenanted with and the Christian and that Christians are grafted into. I do want us to see the heart for a God who has called people to be his over 1,800 times in Scripture. I do want to invite us to love the Jewish people that God loves. I do want to caution us that there is an enemy of God who wants to destroy the people he calls his own and has wanted to since in the beginning. It doesn't make sense otherwise that why there would be a war over this little land. I don't know too many wars over Rhode Island right now. And as that compares with Israel, maybe it's a, Israel's a little bigger, but there's something spiritual happening, not just political. I want to invite you to honor and respect Jewish people for the history, for the understanding of God that we glean, and for the intimacy of relationship which they have demonstrated with God. I want to encourage you to learn from the Jewish people. I believe as we honor and respect Jewish people, they will be able to see God, their God, reflected in our actions and the way we talk. So as we enter into this week of prayer and fasting, I want to invite you to consider some of these things. I want to invite you to pray for the people of Israel. I invite you to pray for the Jewish people. They're in a tough space right now. And honestly, they're not sure who their friends are. Because every time Jews get close to Gentiles, historically, there's been a turning. And we see that sometimes. This message wasn't about politics. But I want to say this one thing about the chants that go on. From the river to the sea is about genocide. It's not just about land. It's about removing a people, just like in the book of Esther, just like at other times in history, just like the Holocaust. It is about trying to remove Jews from this earth. And I will tell you that God will defend it. But it's why I can't agree with some of these statements that are out there. God will defend his people. Lord Jesus, thank you for your heart for a people. God, we want to do what is good, what is tov. Lord, what is infused with life spiritually, physically, and emotionally. God, will you pour into us that goodness? God, will you help us not to stare at idols, whether that is our opinions about other people's or it's things in our heart, God, that have been put before you. Would you give us grace, Lord, that those things could be rooted out even this week of prayer and fasting. And Lord, I pray for the peace of Israel, peace in Jerusalem, Lord, and that you would move our hearts to be aligned rightly with the people you call your own. We just pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Happy New Year, thank you so much.